0: I'm Charles Lee.
1: And I'm Elise Kovic.
0: And this is the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program...
1: We get to chat with Jeff Potter, author of Cooking for Geeks.
0: So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grok Science Show.
1: can safely be labeled a renaissance man of sorts he did the whole cubicle thing the entrepreneur thing the art thing and the computer science thing and throughout all of these things he kept himself sane by cooking for his friends so these experiences have led to my new official favorite book and it's titled cooking for geeks real science great hacks and good food so jeff welcome to the grok science show
2: Thanks for having me.
1: No problem. So I'm proud to say that this is a geek-run show, and it has one of the geekiest audiences around, so consider yourself surrounded by geekdom right now. (laughs) Speaking of that, now, in the preference of the book, you dedicated the book to three types of geeks, and basically, I'd love to know, who are these geeks?
2: Well, I suppose there's a whole broad question here of what exactly a geek is. one one can talk about kind of the the stereotypical, oh, technology people, that would be your programmers, your engineers, your makers, you know, kind of anything you kind of normally think of. But actually in in hindsight, one of the things I realized after writing the book was really much better definition for geek would have been anybody who's curious about the details, about how things work. Mm -hmm. So to me, if you are the sort of person that really just gets into how things works and wants to take them apart and figure out what makes things tick, then you're a geek and you know that might be a car geek or it might be a sports geek somebody who really gets into the game Mm -hmm. Um, news geeks physics geeks coffee geeks Mm -hmm. Um, and of course bringing it back to the book uh, cooking geeks anybody who wants to get into the kitchen and just get a sense of how things work so they can fearlessly go and make dinner
1: so fearlessly one of the things that you said is that you have these people who let their geek flex fly but when it comes to cooking they freeze
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of times it's because what it means to turn out a good meal to so many people is, well, they imagine something that's perfect. Mm -hmm. And the thing about going into a kitchen is it's impossible to turn out a perfect meal. It just doesn't exist. What you can do is go into the kitchen and turn out a really good meal. And there's always things that when you, you look at, there's always things you can think, how could I have done this better? Or, gee, I wish it came out that way. But the thing is, if you're cooking for other people, they don't know that. So really, it's just nice to go and have a good time with your friends and go into the kitchen and cook a good meal and have it be about community and so many other things. And so for me, if if you're the type of geek that normally sits in front of a computer, you already know how to kind of block and tackle certain kinds of problems, how to subdivide things and say, okay, I'm going to try doing this. Maybe the reason it's not working is because it's something here. And it's exactly the same thing in the kitchen. You know, if you are trying to make a particular dish and it's not working and you're following a recipe, you get lost really quickly. It's like, well, why isn't it working? I followed the recipe exactly. Mm -hmm. The thing is, recipes are just notes. They're just reminders of a certain protocol, a certain way of going and doing something. But it's really up to the person who's in the kitchen to kind of make it their own. And as part of that, when something isn't going right, you really need to be comfortable understanding how to test things and say, okay, well... The chicken doesn't come out the way I wanted it to. It was too dry. Why would that be? Well, maybe if I try this or try that, next time it'll come out differently. But you have to be willing to turn that light bulb on mm-hmm. and have that curiosity when you're in the kitchen.
1: One thing I want to clarify with this book is it's not about cooking geeks exactly. It's it's for everybody. You know, I'm a cook, but I don't really have to be to to get into this book because I've shoved this book into so many faces of people who just can't cook. And they, they were really into it order to organize my thoughts. I was hoping we can go through the chapters. And chapter one, you equate cooking to thinking like a hacker. And so how is hacking even like cooking?
2: Well, I think one (laughs) has to back up and kind of define what it means to be a hacker to begin with. Hacking in the traditional classical sense of the word really is about that MacGyver moment. It's about that, that moment when you think, I need to get there. And what I have is chicken wire, gum, and duct tape. <laughs> How could I make this work? And somehow, MacGyver always managed to make it work. And anybody who is familiar with that challenge of trying to overcome an obstacle and get somewhere is familiar with that same process. Really, it boils down to using things in ways that they weren't originally intended for. So, you know, the silly example of this is, is something like. I don't know, take a strainer. I have a metal strainer and there was one day where I was frying up some fish and I didn't have a splatter guard. And I I looked at the strainer, it's metal, it happened to be the exact same diameter as the frying pan, so I just threw it upside down on top of the frying pan and instantly it became a splatter guard. Sure, Now, it wasn't designed as a splatter guard, but it works functionally that way just fine. Mm-hmm. And so that in a certain way is a hack. I'm using something in a way than it was originally designed for, but it works just fine.
1: So this book, like The Splatter Guard, it's, it's just it's full of tips, recipes. I found myself actually just going... Skipping the recipes because I was just so into all of the other information. I'm planning on going back to the recipes, of course. But you have so many cool interviews in there. Tell me about some of them because you even managed to interview that cutie from America's Test Kitchen, who I adore. <laughs>
2: Adam Reed. Yeah. Was fun to talk with. Yes. So the interviews really, for me, were a great way for me both to talk to some experts in their various disciplines and also bring their voices into the book and share them with the reader. Um, The book's got about two dozen interviews, everybody from Harold McGee to Adam Savage to Adam Reed, as we mentioned a minute ago. And each of these people has a different particular background, which is why I spoke with them. Um, In the case of Adam Reed, it really was thinking about kitchen equipment, because that's one of the things he's well known for. But we also talked about developing recipes. Um, There was a researcher at Cornell, a guy named Dr. Brian Wansink, who looks at how we approach cooking and food, and kind of our relationship with food. And one of his studies actually looked at the types of cooks, and he found that instead of the world being divided into two types, people who bake and people who cook, that it really divides much more into roughly five types. And that was one of those aha moments for me, because I suddenly realized that one of these types, the type that he calls an innovative type, really described me very well and he actually has this quiz that he kindly allowed me to run in the book that readers can take to kind of figure out what kind of cook they are. In the case of myself being an innovative type of cook, this basically means I'm the sort of person who doesn't really follow a recipe. I might look at some recipes for ideas, but really I walk into the kitchen and I toss stuff into a pan and I have an intuitive sense of how it's going to come out. And for that kind of person, A traditional cookbook is really very frustrating, because you just kind of look at it, but you don't know what to really do. True.
1: But But do you find that you can bake, though?
2: Yeah, actually, I have no problem baking.
1: But don't you feel that you really have to follow the rules of baking? Yeah, there's a lot of chemistry going on there.
2: There's a lot of chemistry going on in cooking, too. What it it comes down to is the error tolerances. Mm -hmm. When you're going to make steak fajitas, if you have 25% too much onion in your dish, it still comes out. If you go to make a loaf of bread and you have 25% too much water, it's not bread anymore. Yeah. But the methodology is still the same. Now, a really good baker can toss stuff into a bowl and it will come out. Mm-hmm. somebody who's not familiar with it at all, that really just comes down to error tolerance mm-hmm. when you go to actually measure stuff. You know, with baking, it's much harder to adjust things once you put them into the oven. And so for that reason, yes, you should measure things. And in fact, you should really weigh them out instead of using volume measurements. But it's essentially the same process.
1: Um, in the second chapter, talk about equipment. I want to know what you think would actually be essential for every kitchen.
2: Nice cutting board, pot, maybe a thermometer, maybe a timer. If you've got that, you've got a kitchen that's better than what 95% of the world has. Having the ability to actually work and break down a product to get it to something that's a cookable size and manageable is, of course, really important. But really it comes down to being able to cut foods and being able to heat them up to cook them. And it doesn't really take that much to do that. And if you look at most parts of the world, well, let's just say that our very basic average American kitchen would be luxurious by many standards in many parts of the world, yet people the world over, for the most part. Managed to cook dinner
1: one of the things that you talked about is how storage is so important in the kitchen and besides keeping things fresher for longer i know that storing certain items in specific ways can help them ripen a bit more quickly can you tell us about that
2: well in the case of things like fruits and vegetables some fruits ripen and also happen to give off a gas called ethylene gas And at first glance, it might seem a little bit confusing because the fruit both gives off that gas and it also ripens in the presence of that gas. So if you take something like pears, which respond to this gas, and you put them into a paper bag, they will ripen faster. If you put something like potatoes into an environment that also has ethylene gas in it, they will actually start to develop this green layer on the outside, which actually is not a good thing in in their case. There's actually a slight toxin that can form there, which is why you should store something separate from other things. But you can control essentially how quickly some fruits ripen by just modifying the environment that they're in.
1: What about Chapter 3, Choosing Your Inputs, Ingredients, and Flavors? This chapter seems to be more about your olfactory and gustatory senses.
2: Yeah, and this is something that was a lot of fun for me to really dig into, was just to really understand how does our sense of taste work? How does our sense of smell work? Because when it comes to cooking, if you're looking at it from an enjoyment point of view, how do you actually think about what kinds of ingredients go together? And that question really comes down to flavor which comes down to taste and smell. And so you can't answer that question until you talk about the mechanics of smell and taste. And it turns out with things like smell, chemical similarity of the odorant compounds in the foods is actually a good predictor of compatibility of the two ingredients going together in a dish. Now, most of us won't actually have the ability to do headspace analysis on a piece of fruit to figure out what it might be compatible with. There's actually a really fun website online called foodpairing.com where a researcher has done this, and essentially you can drop in any food item, and he will give you a list of other things that are compatible with it from a flavor point of view. But really just getting an understanding of how smell and how taste works enables you to kind of start building a mental model of how when you walk into the kitchen certain things are going to work well together or not work well together.
1: Now, you also talked about being a taster versus a super taster, and there's um, a test.
2: There is a test. So it turns out from a, from a taste point of view that there are physiological differences between some of us, and one of them, which is probably a very minor one, but is one that we know about, is something called super tasting. It was discovered accidentally in the 1930s by a chemist at DuPont, a guy named Arthur Fox who accidentally spilled a compound called phenylthiocarbamide on a lab bench. And some of it got up in the air and he didn't notice anything, but a lab mate of his started complaining of this really bitter tasting sensation. This is back in the days before OSHA. So like any researcher back then, he proceeded to experiment on family and friends. And what he found was that some of us taste this compound as bitter and other people don't taste it at all. Now, this compound itself doesn't actually exist naturally. Um, it's completely synthetic, but it is similar enough to a compound, to an entire family of compounds called glucosinates, that occur in green vegetables and also similar to things like caffeine and nicotine, that if you taste this particular compound, you're less likely to eat your green veggies or you're more likely to spike your coffee with cream and sugar or you're less likely to smoke. It's just a good example that there are differences in how different people taste Sometimes physiologically, sometimes it's cultural preference and psychology, but regardless, we all do have different taste points for things like how much salt we want in our food. So if somebody likes their food spicier or with more salt or maybe less salt or sweeter, there's good mechanisms to explain why this occurs.
1: Would this explain taste aversions then?
2: As far as I know, taste aversions come up from exposure and essentially environmental. They're not physiologically driven. Oftentimes, in fact, we will misidentify a food that we think has caused us some sort of you know, stomach illness and swear off of it when, in fact, it's not actually that. Some people will swear off of oysters or whatever else because they get sick once, and maybe it wasn't the oysters at all. And in fact, there's a, there's a term for this name, Bernays sauce um, effect. It's really surprising, actually. You can have one bad exposure to something and just not be able to stomach it at all forever after. That's how hardwired our brains are for avoiding things that could make us ill again in the future. It really comes down to survival at that point.
1: I was hoping that you could tell everybody about this because it's, I think it's so cool. Flavor-tripping and flavor-tripping parties.
2: <laughs> this is something that's commonly called miracle berries. Um, there's a compound in this particular fruit called miraculin that essentially causes your sweet taste receptors in your tongue to fire in the presence of things that would normally taste sour. So the miraculin, as a compound, essentially binds to part of your tongue temporarily, 20 or 30 minutes. Um, and you can do this by either taking a miracle berry and basically chomping down on it and kind of letting the juices swirl around on your tongue for a few minutes, or there's actually tablets that have the miraculin content in them. And the tablets are more consistent, at least. But essentially, what happens is you put this compound on your tongue, and then anything you taste that's sour will end up tasting sweet, so things like, well, lemon. Well, actually, tastes like candied lemon, like really sugary, almost even though there's no sugar there. It's kind of a fun and interesting thing to do, and it gives you another better understanding of how our sense of taste can work under certain conditions. So,
1: have you been to one of these parties though?
2: We, I have done miracle Bears with my friends before. Yes. Really. In one of my friends, um, there was like turkey sandwiches or something like that afterwards, mm-hmm. and he swore that it was like. Honey-glazed turkey, even though there was no sweetness there. Really? There was something in the sandwich that was kicking off that sweetness receptor.
1: Now, this comes from a plant in East Africa, doesn't it?
2: It does. And I, it- <laughs> okay, let's
1: talk about Chapter 4. Um, two of the most important variables in cooking. Time and temp.
2: Time and temperature, absolutely.
1: So, I mean, this chapter is pretty much about heat transfer and protein denaturation um, and what's gonna result. So what are some of these methods of heat transfer that we we commonly use to denature proteins, for instance, in cooking?
2: Anytime you walk into a kitchen and you heat something up, you know, you're essentially transferring heat there. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is anything from, you know, throwing a pan onto a burner and sauteing something, which would be essentially a conduction. You know, the heat's passing from the burner to the pan. And the pan itself is heating the food up via direct contact. You've got things like your oven where you're roasting or baking something, and that's convection. Basically, hot air is sliding against the cold food and transferring the energy as as those two materials interface. And you have uh, kind of another category of things that are radiation. This is things like your microwave, um, but also broiling or grilling. I mean, if you stick your hand outside your window while you're driving your car down the road and you feel that hot warm sunlight hitting your hand, that's essentially radiant energy from the sun. So breading and grilling work that same way. But really, regardless of what happens, what really matters is the actual temperature of the food. Because if you've got something like an egg or uh, a steak, and you heat that food up, the proteins in it will begin to denature once they pass a critical heat point. And in the case of things like eggs or meat, that begins to happen on the territory of around 122 in the case of things like steak, around 144 in the case of things like eggs. So really whatever heat method you use to heat that food up, what really matters is actually the the temperature of the food itself, because as that food comes to certain temperatures, it begins to undergo physical and chemical reactions. And that's really what heating food is all about.
1: So give me some nightmare situations of what happens if the ideal temp isn't hit
2: for certain pieces of food. Nightmare situations are things like you take a five-pound frozen block of ground turkey out of your freezer and you drop it into a slow cooker and you set it to slow cook. And what happens in that case is the slow cooker is not heating that food up very quickly compared to the amount of energy it takes for that middle of that five-pound mass of frozen ground beef to come to temperature. And the danger here is that any bacteria that might be present in there has a chance to actually multiply to levels that can be sufficiently quite dangerous to you and cause you foodborne illness. So this is why you're often told to defrost things like five-pound blocks of ground meat or your frozen turkey for Thanksgiving in your refrigerator the day before. Because at fridge temperatures, the bacteria don't really multiply quickly enough that it's ever really of concern. And food's not going to spoil, but it will thaw out so that when you then do go to cook it, you're not dealing with something that takes so long to come up to temperature. The standard rule that's given in food safety is to not hold foods that can spoil uh, between 40 and 140 degrees for more than four hours. In some states, the laws actually say two hours, but essentially you're trying to avoid a temperature range that bacteria can multiply and then cause you harm, either directly from their own presence or indirectly from any toxins that they might produce and leave behind in the food. So really understanding food safety is actually, it, it doesn't take that much to really understand the core rules of it, but it is something that really we should be much more mindful of than we typically are.
1: In the book, you tell people that if they have really messed up books, written all over, stained with grease, you want them to send you copies of these written up books and that you'll send them something in return. So I'm just wondering, yeah, and
2: actually, the, has this, this happened? Actually, this has not happened yet. This actually refers to my book, Cooking for Geeks. What I would love would be for somebody to take this book and make their notes in it and then pass it along to their friend because once they've made their annotations and notes, it becomes a better book, and their friend can then value from that, and you're essentially starting to kind of form a community through that, and you you almost get a dialogue with the book in a certain sense. And my my hope is one of these days to receive a copy of my book that's gone through so many different people's hands and had so many notes made up that I can then understand where it is other people – have questions or insights or tips or wisdom, because really in so much of what the book's spirit is about, it's really about community. And something that's a little bit frustrating as an author is it's essentially a one-direction conversation where I spend so much time thinking about it and writing it, but it's very difficult to hear what the audience has to say. So for me, in that sense of a traditional hacker, going back to being my background being computer science, getting a sense of what it is other people are curious about and where their questions are. I'm fascinated by that just as much as anything else.
1: But it could be a two-way conversation if they go to your companion website, cookingforgeeks.com.
2: Yes, and I do have a blog there, and and there is some lively conversation going on, in fact, on the topic of sous vide stuff, uh, which is covered in the book in Chapter 7. Sous vide is a cooking technique that's essentially, you can kind of think of it like ultra-low temperature poaching. So if you take something like steak and think about what it means to cook steak, there's two different proteins in there that really seem to matter. One's called myosin. It begins to cook around 122. Another is called actin, and it begins to cook around 150. And it seems that we prefer steak where the myosin is cooked, denatured, no longer native, and the actin still in its unchanged state. So if you take a steak and you cook it to 140 degrees, you get medium rare steak. This is what most people prefer, and it tastes delicious. If you put steak into a water bath at the temperature of 140 degrees, it eventually comes to 140 degrees and it's also medium rare at that point. And so this cooking technique called sous vide, it's two words, S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E, is essentially that. It's essentially a way of doing really precise temperature controlled cooking to get certain reactions to occur while avoiding other reactions.
1: I absolutely love this. I I, I really, 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 really love your book. Wow, thanks. No, I really do. This is, honestly, this is perfect for the holidays. Even if you don't like cooking, you could give it to any science geek you know, and it's just chock full of useful information. I love it. Anyway, quick question. What's next for you? And then it's time for the Grokatron
2: um dinner probably
1: (laughs) (laughs) i want you to come to chicago and i want to cook with you
2: that'd be fun i'll let you know when i'm out
0: there
1: oh fabulous okay so uh, i'm gonna turn this over so charles can uh, turn on the gracatron
0: all right well it's time to play the gracatron 5000 it's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the Grocotron 5000 has chosen the following topic. I would like to know if you would consider the following people to be buttery? No, it's bitter. Oh, sorry. That's even better. <laughs> this-
1: <laughs> you, they could be buttery. I don't care. Why not?
0: All right, that's another category. Then buttery, bitter, salty, sour, or sweet. So, uh, Mr. Potty, ready to play the game? Sure.
1: <laughs> All right, number one, Conan O'Brien.
0: Oh, can he be more than one?
2: He can be whatever. He can be all. Well, I think he's, he's recently managed to demonstrate himself as being well, much more wacky, I think, than he probably was in his last show. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go with him. He's definitely not bitter.
1: I think he's a, a still bitter, don't you?
2: Well, maybe bittersweet. I would be bitter. I think, actually, he might be—I'm uh... going to go with bittersweet. All right, so number two is Charlie Sheen. Oh, I think he's burnt. Well, he's not sweet. (laughs) Let's go with sour. Anybody can go through as much as he's gone through. There's got to be something going on in his head that's causing him to go back and do what he's been doing time after time after time. I mean, right? I can't disagree with
1: you there. All right, here's another one for you. John Boehner. His name is actually written as Boner. B-O-E-H-N-E-R. But it's not Boner. It's Boehner.
2: Is that how you pronounce it?
1: Yeah, seriously. I, I, yeah.
2: Don't know if I want to go there. Maybe I'll, I would say bitter. <laughs>
1: I'll leave you I alone with that, that
2: one. All right. Yeah. How
1: about Gordon Ramsay then?
2: You know, I often think he's sweet. I do. I think that Gordon Ramsay is one of these people that's probably a really nice sweetheart underneath, and when he does things like Hell's Kitchen, mm-hmm. it's a bit of an act in a certain way, and how he gets portrayed in the editing process of that show. I, I actually, I, I think he's probably, he'd be a fascinating guy to have dinner with, um, and I, I, think that he's probably, I think he's probably sweeter than most people would expect. Expect secretly, he's actually a sweetheart. Seen, have you seen any of, the, of his British shows as opposed to the American shows? No,
1: I have not. Why, is he cuddly Completely there? Completely different
2: personality. Really? Completely different personality, yeah.
1: All right, fine. Then my hometown gal, Oprah.
2: Oprah. You know, anybody who has done as much as she's done and gone as far as she has has got to be tough as nails, for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's probably, uh, you know, I guess I'm just an optimist. I'm going to say sweet again. I- I mean, she's certainly not bitter, she's not sour, she's not salty maybe she's umami
1: See, I left umami out of this, but you know what? I think salty is a good thing. Salty to me means sassy, so I'm going, I'm going sweet and salty. A very good combination, if you ask me. Okay. All right. So um, that's it. So one more time, everybody. The book is Cooking for Geeks: Real Science, Great Hacks, and Good Food. The author is Jeff Potter. Awesome book. um, On our website, stay tuned because we have a uh, food-related question of the week where you can actually win Mr. Potter's book. So stay tuned. And, Mr. Potter, have an awesome day. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I love the book.
2: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye.
0: That's a very cool book.
1: It it really is. And for Thanksgiving this year, I am going to use it, and I'm going to make myself a lot smarter when I can avoid burning that turkey this year.
0: (laughs) All right. So we do have a question of the week for uh, listeners out there in case they want to uh, try and win a copy of Cooking for Geeks. Uh, The question is...
1: Okay. So... Tell me what this is. It is the waxy coating that you find on top of chocolate. It's the main problem um, in chocolate production. It results from changes in fat crystals that infiltrate the surface. Or it could be a result of the action of moisture on sugar ingredients. So what you should do is email us at GrokScience. We will take all of the correct answers, and we'll put you in a hat, and we'll pick one out, and then we will send you a copy of Cooking for Geeks. The
0: Fat and moisture on top of chocolate, so it's not a fat, sweaty guy.
1: No. No. Oh, no, well, at well. least I hope it's okay, not. Well. Um, all right, and it is time for the bi-monthly. Grok, shout-out. That's
0: right. We have several shout-outs of all the people who we have to shout-out.
1: Okay, so we have to give a special shout-out to the uh, lovely ladies in the Northwestern MSTP office. We have the lovely Judy Brown, the lovely Carmen Offen, and the
0: lovely Becca Lamar. Hello, ladies. (laughs) Well, and of course we... Oh, wait. Hi, Mick. How can we forget Mick? I I can't. I'll never forget Mick. I don't think the show could go on without Mick, really.
1: Oh, and a special shout-out to Steve. Steve... I want to say hello to you, and thank you for commenting on the blog.
0: Some new commenters, German, Jay Carroll, and uh, Steve, of course, we mentioned. Mm -hmm. And uh, Yeah, of course. uh, Go to our blog, www.grox.net. Comment on it, and uh, we'll give you a shout-out.
1: Yeah, and also, please email us. Let us know if you have any show suggestions. Let us know if you have any questions. Let us know what you think of the show. We want to hear from you, and let us know if you want a shout-out, because we will (laughs) give it.
0: The website, grox.net, and of course, uh, email us, groxscience at gmail.com or science at groks.net.
1: Thank you for listening in to the Grox Science Show today. We look forward to you tuning in. And
0: Indeed. Tune in. So we'll be back with more from the Grox Science Show. I've been your host, Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And of course, if you'd like to see us on the web, our web address, www.grox.net. Email us, science at and we're on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great afternoon.